This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Jesus said, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Therefore, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost all those who come to God through him, since he ever lives to make intercession for them. For this reason, Paul said, I suffer all things, because I know whom I have believed and am committed And he is committed to keep those things which I have committed to him against or until that day. Before we open God's word, let's bow our heads together in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for all that you've given us and provided for us. Father, we thank you for your word, that it is your word that illuminates our thinking and teaches us what reality is, that there is a truth. It is your truth. It is your reality because you created it and defined it and made human beings who they are as those who are created in your image and likeness, given value and purpose, distinguishing us from all other uh, creatures, distinguishing us from animals, distinguishing us from angels, that we are distinctively in your image and thus have great value. In this church age, you have gone beyond that for church age believers, and you have given us an incredible wealth of revelation. Our biggest challenge is, are we going to depend upon our own finite wisdom, understanding, experience, or are we going to submit ourselves to your definition of reality? So, Father, as we continue our study in Ephesians 5, talking about what it means to walk In the light, we pray that you would illuminate our thinking to the truth of your word and how it applies to our own lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. And today we are going to entitle the message, Awake, Not Woke. I think that's a great way to summarize the distinctions that are being made by Paul here, that we are to walk in the light, not in darkness. We have two options. And the darkness is a term that characterizes any pagan worldview. And pagan is not a derogatory term. It is not an insult. It is a technical term that means anyone that is not submissive to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so if you do not submit to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if you are defining reality on your own terms, on that which is the product of a scientific, uh, modernist worldview, or a a more frequent, uh, irrational worldview of postmodernism, then if, if that's your authority then you might be a believer in Jesus Christ, but you are your thinking is still defined by darkness. 
We have to learn to submit ourselves to the Word of God. That doesn't always come easily. People have a lot of baggage that they bring to the cross when they get saved. And that's the process of the spiritual life. We look at passages like Romans 12.2 that says, don't be pressed into the mold of the world. And that's talking about don't be pressed or conformed to the world system, to the thought systems of the world, the philosophies, the uh, religions of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's a process that takes time. And we live in a world that is constantly redefining ways to make life work. This has been going on since the Garden of Eden. We bankrupt every system of thought that has been developed from ancient times up through modern times. We wonder, why do things keep changing? Why have things changed so much in just our lifetime? And that is because as we have pushed or as the culture has pushed the boundaries of their relativistic thinking that is based upon their finite knowledge or their finite experience, the result is they ultimately discover that it doesn't work that it doesn't solve the problems of personal pain and anguish and disappointment. And deep within the soul of every human being, I think there is a recognition that things in the world aren't what they should be. And we come closest to recognizing that at the time of the death of a loved one. And we realize this isn't right. There's something wrong here, that there is death in the world. That's not right. We should have be able to overcome that. And a lot of people work desperately to try to extend their life and to overcome the problems of death and disease and famine. But apart from God and apart from any real understanding of why these things are there, the very fact that deep in their soul there's a recognition that this isn't right ought to be a warning. I think God's put that there as a warning for us to recognize that, yeah, that's right. We live in an abnormal world. When Eve first disobeyed God and ate from the fruit, and then Adam did, it plunged the world into spiritual death, not only in the human race, but it corrupted every single thing on the planet. That's the biblical explanation. And only an almighty God, an omnipotent God, is able to solve that problem. And he did so through the cross. And so through faith in Christ, we are given a new identity. It doesn't wipe out immediately the problems of sin. We still have sin natures. We still have sinful habits and sinful patterns and sinful thoughts and sinful ways of thinking. I had a professor in seminary who used to say it's hard enough to think. It's even harder to think about how you think. And that's very important because you can think right thoughts, but you've got them in the wrong package. And that package, I mean the worldview, because there are a lot of worldviews that recognize um, right certain principles of right and wrong that we may all be able to agree with. But ultimately, they run into a problem, and somebody has uh, coined the phrase being mugged by reality. 
that was used in another category. But Christians, I mean, non-Christians eventually realized that, that they can't live in the irrational world they, that they've created. Or they start to go nuts, and so they turn to drugs, and they turn to sex, and they turn to alcohol, they turn to uh, achievement and materialism, anything to try to make that go away. But for the Christian, we have to be careful that we do not partake of those elements that are that find their natural home within the various uh, non-biblical worldviews and uh, things that are anti-biblical in their thinking. And that's what is going on in this particular passage. When we walk in the light, it doesn't expand on that and say, well, where is that? Uh, it doesn't identify that within this passage, but it identifies it within this, within the whole realm of Scripture that we walk in the light means to walk consistently with the character of God. That's defined as righteousness. Light is a picture of God's just righteousness and his justice, his purity, his distinctiveness. And that is expressed through his word. So that the psalmist makes it clear in Psalm 119 that it is that we walk in the light of his word. We walk in the uh, light and the illumination that God gives us through his revelation. And so this passage that we're looking at in Romans, I mean, excuse me, in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, starting verse 8, it started talking about the fact that we ha are to walk in the light. And the contrast is walking in darkness. So this is where we are, learning what this means. And as we come to the close of this particular paragraph, uh, we're going to hear the command addressed to us, and more specifically to those who are not paying attention to God's Word because they are spiritually lazy or in rebellion. This command, Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. So we have to understand that that if you just look at that verse or if you've read it, you go, what in the world is that talking about? So we have to understand that. So in the last couple of weeks, we focused on the fact that this passage uh, mandates us that we are not to have a partnership, an intimate partnership and involvement with the works of darkness. That's in verse 11. And then we are to separate from that. That's the focal point of not having partnership uh, with the unfruitful work of, of darkness, but it, rather we are to expose them. Now, the emphasis here is that it's the light that exposes it. So in review, we've had to look at what the Bible teaches about light. Second, we looked at what the Bible teaches about our new position as believers in the light. Ephesians is written to believers. If you have trusted in Christ as Savior, then you can learn from this, and this is a challenge to each and every one of us. It is not written to con uh, convert unbelievers, and convert is just a simple term of turning from uh, darkness to light. And it's um, and once we trust in Christ, we have a new identity. We are in Christ. We still have a sin nature. We, we're not perfect. We're not sinless. We're never going to be until we're absent from this body. 
Third, even though we are children of light, that's our new identity, just as you are a child of your parents. But you could still disobey your parents, but it did not cancel your identity in that family. That's the same way in the body of Christ. We're in Christ, we have a new identity, but we sin, and we don't act like we're part of that family. So we have to learn how to walk in obedience to God, walking in the light of his word. And so this passage is talking about how how we are to do that. I've highlighted the light words for us. This is the theme through this repetition. We continue to see that all the way to these last two verses. And that the command is to walk. We are to expose them the works of darkness, not the people. It's not focusing on going around and, and challenging people. It's that by our life, by the way we think and the actions and the application of our thought system, that it challenges and exposes the darkness. And you have these words, expose, make manifest, enlighten. So we looked at Ephesians 5.10 that we have to find out what is acceptable to the Lord, which means we have to evaluate or scrutinize our whole belief system prior to salvation. The way it is after salvation, many times we still have lots of these other elements. So we have to uh, go through that, evaluate that. And then verse 11 says we're not to have any fellowship or partnership with the unfruitful works of darkness but we are rather to expose them or make them manifest. And then we come to our verse 12, for it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. And so I've circled that first word for because it indicates an explanation. So there is a command in verse 11 to not partner with the unfruitful works of darkness And you might say, well, why? I enjoy that. It makes life work for a while. It's easy. It's what comes naturally. And the explanation of this, Paul says, for it's shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. So we looked at what the Bible teaches about separation. And I'm not going to review the whole thing, but last time in the first a point, I said separation in Scripture is emphasized because of the negative influence of those around us, otherwise known as peer pressure. And we are to separate from these various influences which can distract us from our spiritual life. I then put this verse up. This verse is 1 Corinthians 15.33. Do not be deceived. That word is from a word that relates to the movement of the planets. That's why they were called planets, because they wandered. And so our thinking can wander off track. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts or destroys good habits or good character or good morals. So we have to be careful of those that are around us that are in positions that can influence us in the wrong way. The positive command is in the next verse, awake to righteousness. Now this, I'm going back to this because it has particular significance in illuminating our present passage. 
Here we have a different word from the word awake that we find in uh, verse 14 of Ephesians uh, 5.14. Here we have the word eknepho, and it is an aorist imperative. That's important because that's emphasizing a priority. We are awake, and this word means to think objectively, to wake up, to be alert to truth to think objectively on the basis of truth and reality as God the Creator has created it and as He has defined it. And that means understanding the reality of sin and its consequences on every aspect of life, from the physical world to the mental and spiritual world. And so often this word is found in warning us because of the imminent return of Christ so that we need to be awake to reality so that we can be properly uh, prepared for that. But we are awake to what? We are awake to righteousness. Interesting word, dikaios, it's an adverb, and it refers to a quality of character, a quality of thought. So we are awake to righteousness which is a quality or character that conforms to God's righteousness. We have two kinds of righteousness mentioned in the Scripture. The first is our positional righteousness. When we trust Christ as Savior, God imputes or counts credit to our account, Christ's righteousness. So we're saved on the basis of Christ's righteousness. That's a free gift to us. But it doesn't make us righteous. And so um, now we, that, that refers to experiential righteousness, so we are to awake to experiential righteousness, a transformation of our character, the way we think, the way we act, the way we talk. And the next command is a present imperative, do not sin. Present imperatives indicate this is just to be a standard operating uh, procedure, regular character, regular uh, characteristic, but when it what we have here is a prohibition, and when we have a present tense prohibition, this is in this case it's probably just stating a general principle that 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 this is something that we are not to do. Okay, so that sets the background for understanding where we are. We're not to have any fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. For, or this is the explanation, that it is shameful even to speak of those things uh, which are done in secret. And so this gives us this explanation that there are many things that are sinful. How many passages can you think about where Paul lists a lot of really heinous sins? Okay? He describes them. These are beyond the pale. This is beyond that. He says it's a shame to even talk about these things. So he's not even going to, uh, going to mention them. He talks about other sins and other passages, but here, no, he's not going to even go there. And this probably, or probably refers to some of the sexual uh, really extreme sexual practices that may have been part of the idolatrous worship in, in their culture. But these were things that were done in private, things that we ought not even uh, talk about. Uh, but they are done in these uh, behind closed doors. And so we are 
to be, recognize that there are some things that are shameful that we should not talk about. They shouldn't be part of our day-to-day conversation. As, we, as I pointed out, as we go back through chapter 4 and chapter 5, there are certain things that should characterize what we talk about and things that shouldn't be characteristic of what we talk about. Now, verse 12 here functions in the flow of what Paul is saying as a parenthesis. It's a parenthetical explanation of what he says in verse 11. Uh, Have no fellowship or partnership with the unfruitful works of darkness. And so we have the explanation, verse 12, which I've left out here, because it's a parenthetical explanation. So to catch the flow of thought... We read, and have no fellowship or partnership with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Now, that's where we see the contrast. I will make a point of grammar here. The beginning of Ephesians 5.13 doesn't begin with the word Allah in Greek, which is your strong but, your strong contrast. It, be, it, it starts with the word de. De has a range of meanings. It can mean and, it can mean but, it can mean even. It, 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 often it's used as just a transition to the next thing. And there are a few translations like the Holman Christian Standard Bible that recognizes that, doesn't even translate it. It's just a trans, transition. And I think that's, that's, hap, that's what's going on here. It's not a contrast because we just had a contrast if we understand the sentence structure but rather expose them. I think it should just be translated as a now. Now, all things that are exposed, how are they exposed? By being brought to the light. All things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. So it is a continued explanation of how we expose them, the last phrase of verse 11. So verse 13 says, but all things that are exposed, it's that same word used in verse 11, the word elenko, and it has to do with uh, bringing something to the light. Uh, It's exposing it. Uh, That's part of what um, it's sometimes translated rebuke, but it really means just to uh, identify something in a broad broad sense. And it's made manifest by the light. This changes to the word phanerao, which has that idea of making something clear because you've illuminated it. You've turned all the lights on. And now you can see things very clearly. And so it has this sense um, in New Testament literature of making something visible that otherwise would have either been hidden or just would not have been clear. And so the believers are told that through their thinking, their actions, their application of the word, that is one way in which it exposes darkness. There are other ways. We talked about them last time, sitting down, talking to somebody, having conversations, telling them about Scripture, uh, talking about these issues. Um, so that you can help them think through, maybe if they're not saved, bringing them to salvation. But that's not the focus of this chapter, I mean this section. It's talking about these believers who have been partners with darkness and that they need to um, 
biblically repent, which simply means to change their minds, to turn away from darkness, and to return to a walk in the light. And so uh, Paul is focusing on that particular aspect. So this last clause that we read here, the explanation for whatever makes manifest is light, is if you have an NIV, that's going to be in the next verse. In some Greek critical texts, they put that in the next verse, and there's some more modern translations like NIV that will put it in the next verse. But I think that's a bad decision because it's an explanation. It starts with four, and it's explaining the previous statement. So by shifting it into the next verse, it uh, obfuscates the meaning of the, the, the uh, clause. Whatever makes manifest is light. Whatever exposes, whatever makes visible uh, is the light. So verse 13 is talking about how verse 11 is applied. Have no partnership with the unfruitful works of darkness, but whether expose them. Well, how do I do that? Well, verse 12 says, or verse 13 says that they're exposed when light illuminates what's going on. We, as I said, we do that through conversation. You can do that many, many different ways. But you, one way you don't do it is to go in like a 19th century um, legalistic revivalist and start pounding heads and uh, telling people everything they're doing is wrong. People need to come to understand these things. And it takes a lot more time to do that. And so then Paul reaches a conclusion, verse 14. So we've had a structure here. He's made a command, do not have partnership with the unfruitful works of darkness. We've had an explanation of how that takes place in verse 13. And now he draws a conclusion. He says, therefore, he says. Now this is rather an interesting verse because it, um, what it is saying is not, it doesn't have to be translated he, it's a third person uh, singular, which can be he, she, or it, and it's referring to the uh, application of the principle, uh, of Scripture, rather. So it's talking about Scripture, so it probably should be translated, therefore it says, because what follows is a reference back to, to to the Scripture. And the problem here is that there are a number of passages in the um, Scripture, in the Old Testament, that are suggested as possible uh, sources for this. Isaiah 26, 19, Isaiah 60, verse 1, uh, Jonah 1, 6. But none of those verses that are suggested actually seem to fit with what Paul writes here. Now, I'm not going to go through what I've taught many times before, but there are four different ways in which Old Testament verses are applied under the formula, this is fulfilled, or this is what the Scripture says. And all four examples can be found in Matthew in Matthew chapter 2. And the last one is stated in Matthew 2.23, which reads, uh, talking about Jesus, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth. This is after their return from Egypt. 
He dwelt in a city called Nazareth that it might be fulfilled. Notice that, fulfillment language. We think of fulfillment only in the first use, that when Micah 5.2 says the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, we think that's fulfilled when Jesus is born there. It's a literal prophecy and a literal fulfillment. But this is, a, a, this is more of a summary of things that are said in the Old Testament, but it still uses that language of fulfillment. It says that, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Never says that in the Old Testament. But being a Nazarene had become an idiom in first century Jewish culture that you weren't real bright that you were from this backwater little village of about a hundred people, and they were they were a little a little slow. You know, everybody has this. When I went to Connecticut, they would say, "Well, you know, if you cross the state line into Maine, your IQ drops fifty points." Uh, others down in Virginia might say that of people in West Virginia. Uh, people in Texas may say that of people who live in Pasadena. I mean, I'm not being insulting to those places, but those are common things you hear people say. So if you were a Jew in the first century and you met somebody and they didn't seem to be too bright, then they would be a Nazarene. Old Testament says that Jesus is not going to be respected. He's not going to be accepted. He's not going to be honored because he comes from Galilee. For the, for the uh, Pharisees, nothing good could come from Galilee and especially from Nazareth. So um, for them, Jesus just could not have been the Messiah because he didn't come from what was, in their opinion, the right place. So that's a summary statement. Well, that's what we have here in 514. These are summaries of things that are said in the prophets. It's not a direct quotation. And so that it's a it's written in poetry. The first line is "Awake, you who sleep." It's an interesting word here. It's not the same word used for awake that we looked at in the First Corinthians passage, and I think that because that's in First Corinthians fifteen, and agyro is used in many passages as a technical term for the resurrection, and that's what Paul's talking about in First Corinthians fifteen. So he used a synonym so as not to be confusing. And here, awake, it has the idea, gyro has the idea of waking up, and Paul's using it and talking to a carnal believer who is spiritually lazy and spiritually asleep. He is asleep in Christ, as some would say. So he's not paying attention. So he says, awake you who sleep. And then the second thing that he says is, uh, arise from the dead. And this is the word anistemi. And it has that sense of raising up to sitting up to resist something, or it can even mean to be restored. And so that's his idea, is you're asleep. You are. Uh, you need to raise up. This is the second word in the second clause, arise from the dead. From this, he's not talking about those who are physically dead. He's not talking about unbelievers who are spiritually dead. Here he's talking about another kind of death, those who are living like, those are believers who are spiritually alive, but they're living like a spiritually dead person. Uh, sometimes this is referred to as carnal death. They're living on the basis of their sin nature like a spiritually dead person. And so he says, awake, 
which is a present active imperative, and uh, arise from the dead is more of an immediate command. Arise from the dead. What's the result if you do? Christ will illuminate you. And this is the process of, of spiritual growth, spiritual enlightenment from the Scriptures. Christ will give you light. When you turn back to the Word, turn back to Christ, which is what the word uh, repent often means, means to turn, to change your mind, to turn back to the Lord, then what happens is as you walk in the light of God's Word, Christ will, through the Holy Spirit, illuminate your thinking to enable you to self-critique, to evaluate your life on the basis of truth, to confess sin, and to move forward. That's the idea here at the end. It's not talking about getting saved. It's not talking to the spiritually dead. It's talking to those who are those believers who are still making partnership with the unfruitful works of darkness. So this is a challenge to all of us. Every one of us has, at one particular time, shifted gears. And we're out of fellowship for a while. We're trying to live apart from God. Paul says the same thing in Romans 13, 11. He says, and do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. See, there's that same, same imagery. For now our salvation. Now remember, in Romans, the word salvation never is a synonym for justification. That's very important when you read through Romans. It's never once. It's not used as a synonym for reconciliation or for justification. It refers to deliverance. And so here it's talking about a believer who is spiritually lazy. He is um, he's, he's insensitive to God and that he's supposed to wake up because our deliverance, and that would be an allusion to being face-to-face with the Lord, is nearer than when we first believed. We keep hearing people say, well, the signs of the times, Jesus' coming is getting closer. It's been getting closer ever since April of 33 A.D. Every day, it's a day closer. But is it near? Wait and see. So the challenge for us is to make sure that we're walking in the light. And if not, then we need to wake up. And we need to get with it spiritually and focus on God's Word. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things today, to worship at the Lord's table, to be reminded again and again of your uh, infinite grace toward us, providing a perfect salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, and that the end result is not our salvation, our justification, but that's just the beginning of a new life. And we are to continue to walk in the light. We are to walk in truth. We are to walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. We are to walk in wisdom. All of these things, all of them focusing us on learning your word, assimilating your word, internalizing and applying your word through the God the Holy Spirit who is the agent of our spiritual growth and who uses your word to transform us. Father, we pray for those who may not be saved, those who are listening, maybe here, maybe online. They've never understood what 
the Bible teaches about eternal salvation, that there is only one way to solve the sin problem, and God had to solve it for us because we were completely unable to do that. And so because we are unable to solve the sin problem, we must depend upon his solution, which is to send Jesus as the perfect sacrifice to die for us in our place, symbolized through the ancient sacrifices in the Old Testament up until he was crucified in our place. So, Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to the fact that we can't do it. All we can do is trust in Jesus, and we have everlasting life. And we pray that you would challenge us with the message as believers that we are to awake and that Christ's light will shine upon us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.